Hello, true crime lovers. Thank you for listening to Chasing Enlightenment. Remember to rate and review if you're enjoying the show. Stay tuned at the end of this episode to hear about another true crime podcast you might enjoy. What you are about to hear may include disturbing descriptions of sexual or physical abuse or may contain coarse language. Listener discretion is advised. Our previous episode was about John Hainis, the founder of the Students of Light. You heard about the founding of the group in the early 1970s, and how by the early 80s, he'd become the sole authority in his followers' lives. By then, John had brought several hundred followers to live in and around Toronto's Junction neighborhood, in close proximity to him and to the group's main businesses there. Many of those followers worked in these businesses, and funneled much of their money to the group and directly to John. John eventually declared that he was the reincarnation of Jesus, and that many of his followers had been Jesus' disciples in their past lives. He taught that they were all together in Toronto to continue the divine mission that they had begun 2,000 years ago. The group John established would remain under his leadership for the next several decades, until his death in 2012. But to understand the way the group evolved over those years, it's important that you know about a key group of his followers. And I remember there is what they used to refer to as the core group. This core group was a group of six or so followers who were especially close to John, to whom he delegated some power. And although most group members only spoke directly to John occasionally, this core group was quite close to him, at one point even moving into the small apartment where he lived above his health food store. They all slept in John's apartment for like a couple of years. About, um, I don't know, at least six or seven of them, including John, all slept in this little tiny apartment every night. I don't know why, just to protect his uh, energy or something. It was weird. They had to go every night and sleep there. The two voices you just heard should be familiar from our last episode, as former group member Cynthia Watson and the voice reading the words of the former member that we're calling Andrew. You'll again hear from them throughout this episode. With their help, we'll tell you how John's core group helped shape the trajectory of the Students of Light, from its earlier days until John's death in 2012. You're listening to Chasing Enlightenment, Episode 4, The Core Group. Besides John Hainis himself, the first core group member you need to know about is a woman named Jean. Jean declined to speak with us for this podcast, so we won't identify her by her last name. But a number of former group members have told us that she played a central role in the group and in its evolution over time. Jean was a British immigrant to Canada who joined the Students of Light sometime around the late 1970s, quickly gaining a spot in John's core group. And then he got involved with this woman her name is Jean, but she was like a, she was a British woman who was very much sort of like a tabloid person, right? News of the world or that kind of stuff. Very involved with weird conspiracy theories and, and uh, uh, stuff like that. 
She was into this whole British hippie culture. You know, you go over there and everyone's sitting on King Arthur's grave at Glastonbury Abbey trying to channel King Arthur, this sort of stuff. If you go over there, it's real trippy. All these crystals, healing shops up and down the main street. It's the British hippie culture. So she came over, but again, it was all kind of like just a hippie cred thing. It's like, I don't have any real qualifications I can put that on paper, like a master's degree or a PhD, but I got my self-proclaimed PhD in hippie cred. And this is what it was like. She's sort of a British hippie queen. Former group members say that Jean claimed to be a medium who could channel masters of the light from other dimensions, beings who communicated to the group by speaking through her body. She'd lay on the table and flop around like she's going through re-entry on a space capsule or something. It was bizarre. And then she started talking in this weird voice. Looking back, Andrew and Cynthia aren't much impressed with these displays of Jean's alleged channeling abilities. You know, not to use vulgar terms, it was bullshit, it was just bullshit. There's nothing to it, it was an act. Yeah, yeah, channel, all right, what bullshit. The channel. <laughs> channeling, I, I, I just don't buy it at all. But John Hanus was apparently quite impressed with Jean's channeling, especially once she began channeling a being who called himself Kumari Seti and claimed to be God himself. Jean soon gained a spot as one of John's six core followers, and John began putting a lot of stock in the words she was channeling. Cynthia claims that Jean's influence hastened what was already a slide towards a cult-like atmosphere in the group. That's when he really went off the rails, I think, with her influence. That's when everything changed, when that woman came in. Because she claimed to channel the voice of God himself, Jean was able to issue authoritative commands to other students of light. In his book, 25 Years with Jesus, Robert Pollock tells the story of an interaction with an unnamed woman in the group, who we can only assume is Jean, given the similarities between his story and other things we've heard about her. Robert writes that, while channeling Kumari Seti, this woman demanded that Robert kneel before her and pledge his obedience and loyalty to the deity speaking through her. When he did so, he was told that his first attempt at a pledge was insufficiently sincere. He was told to leave and return with a better one, and if he didn't, he'd be kicked out of the Students of Light altogether. Cynthia told us another story about Jean issuing orders to other group members. For a Halloween party one year, several group members put on a gender-bending production of Cinderella, in which Cynthia dressed up as Prince Charming and the female roles were played by men. It went well until Jean had some feedback about it afterwards. Like, it was hilarious. The, the, the audience loved us. So many laughs and so much fun. And um, then afterwards, we were having like a dance party and, and um, the word came in from the... From, on eye thing, you know, there are evil spirits at work here and you need to shut this party down, go home and have fun no more. And pretty much there was never any fun after that. Cynthia says that after Jean shut this party down, the atmosphere in the group became a lot more serious and intolerant of innocent fun. Like before that, uh, We'd have, you know, people when they got married, uh, Martin and I used to do the, um, we'd uh, do the music for the weddings and everybody would be dancing and having fun. And so, you know, there was often many happy, fun parties before, but after that Halloween party, there was never any fun anymore. That, that was just the end of it. Former group members tell us that with her channeling and her status as one of John's core followers, Jean enjoyed lording power over others in the group. 
but she never outwardly tried to challenge the authority of John Hainis himself. Instead, she used her channeling to ingratiate herself with John and to prop up his leadership. One early instance of this concerned another core group member, John's right-hand man, Don Colmar. Don met John in Toronto in the early 1970s. In the group's early days, Don adopted the nickname The Rev and became one of the main public faces of the group. He oversaw much of the group's efforts to bring aura balances on the road, regularly traveling to the eastern U.S. to offer balances to potential new members and to existing members living afar. Around 1979, though, John had Don forced out of the Students of Light, with the help of Jean and her channeling. Former members say that John believed Don had become arrogant and was trying to gain too much power in the group for himself, and that John therefore wanted Don out. When the group turned against Don, um, and it was really all about him trying to take any power away from John. That was all it was. John didn't like the competition of Don being too powerful. He wanted to be you know, the one and only head of the gang. To help oust Don from the group, Gene channeled that he was a reincarnation of the fallen angel Lucifer. This gave John some ammo to help him push Don out, claiming that he was arrogantly refusing to do the work required to atone for evils from his past lives. Don left, and at first began encouraging some of John's followers to break off and join him instead, attempting to found a new group of his own. Failing at this, Don cut off contact with the group, and John ordered group members never to speak to him again, because he was dangerous. After this, Cynthia claims that John and Jean continued to use Jean's channeling as a way to manipulate other group members. One story from the early 80s suggests that their combined influence over the group was beginning to create a toxic mess. According to both Cynthia and Robert Pollock's book, John began exerting his authority over a woman in the group with whom he desired a sexual relationship. Despite his instructions that group members were to remain celibate, John told this woman that it was divinely ordained that she sleep with him, which instigated a year-long coercive relationship. He told her that it was for her spiritual growth. Yeah, it was a terrible manipulation. Extremely manipulative. Robert and Cynthia both say that John eventually accused this woman of being a reincarnation of Satan. While Robert's book doesn't get into many more details, Cynthia claims that this was another accusation channeled by Jean, soon after the woman John was abusing failed to be a totally submissive follower and spoke out against him. John told other group members that nothing this woman said could be trusted, and these group members began demanding that she admit to secretly being Satan. Eventually, all of this led the woman John had been abusing to leave the group. Apparently, Jean routinely channeled information about who John's followers had been in their past lives. Group members were told that they had once been famous historical figures, including long-dead royalty and famous authors. In addition to his claims that he was Jesus reincarnated, Cynthia says that John made many other grandiose claims about himself, though she's not very impressed with these anymore. You know, you know, he was supposed to be Tolstoy. Doubt it. He was supposed to be Robert Louis Stevenson. Doubt it. Oh, in the end, he was coming up with people who were still alive. Well, he was still alive. Like Wayne Gretzky. Yeah, he thought he was Wayne Gretzky. Cynthia also says that these sorts of ideas about past lives and reincarnation contributed to John's teachings getting stranger over time. You heard in previous episodes that John's instructions about day-to-day -day life originally centered around aura balancing and meditation when one wasn't working in group-owned businesses. But through the 1980s, these instructions evolved and intensified. For example, in his book 25 Years with Jesus, Robert Pollock writes about something called the Great Work. John taught that the very same soul could be distributed throughout many people at the same time. 
that the same soul could be reincarnated in as many as 49 different people on Earth simultaneously. And he said that group members shared souls with world leaders like Queen Elizabeth. This gave group members a kind of psychic connection with these leaders, through which they could influence them by causing them to have dreams and epiphanies about important matters. The great work was the imperative for group members to influence these world leaders in positive directions, to stop wars and unite countries across borders, thereby bringing about world peace. John also began teaching that certain group members were what he called visitors, or aliens who had long ago lived in other solar systems. Some of us are visitors and some of us are humans. The, the visitors are aliens, souls that have uh, come from outer space or whatever. And the visitors are, I mean, the humans are the people who are authentically from Earth with authentic human feelings. Yeah, they labeled us all that way. Either we were human or visitor, either alien or human, authentically human. John also taught that human souls had once been great beings of light that had fallen into darkness, and that certain group members had within them dark beings with names like being of illusion, being of deceit, and being of doubt. People were beings. My ex-husband, who was the kindest, gentlest man in the world, they called him being of violence, and he was responsible for all the violence in the world. Right? Like crazy shit. It was imperative that dark beings and dark energies be purged from one's soul. This led John to institute a practice that he called releasing. The practice was reserved only for those that John said had become advanced students, progressing past the beginner level of regular aura balances. Releasing was meant to purge oneself of negative emotions, of dark energies, and of the consciousness of dark beings from one's past lives, which could be lurking somewhere inside oneself. Yeah, it just got weirder and weirder. It just got sort of... Yeah, there, there was this thing that they did. They built this whole, um, uh, like a room underground. I don't even know how they did it, but it was like this subterranean room where you would go. I think they called it the release. You'd go in and have some kind of release where you'd release your evil demons. Oh, they do some kind of boom, you know. Like when you touch someone and out you evil spirits and the person falls down. That kind of shit. Yeah, that shit. Release, they called it. The release of the demons. During these sessions, John would hold the heads of those being released and demand that they locate the place within themselves where, as Jean was channeling, some dark entity resided. In his notes from his time in the group, former member Martin Bevlander described one of these sessions in which he felt a dark being stirring inside himself. I experienced a glimpse of the being of power when Jean asked me to forgive myself for it. It felt like a huge, powerful being, having its existence at some other dimension within me, and it stirred for a moment, making its power felt. Those undergoing releases would try to cast out dark entities by forgiving themselves for harboring them. These sessions could last hours, during which people would often convulse and scream. Those who had just been released were considered especially vulnerable to being taken over by dark forces again, so they were instructed to remain isolated for three days while performing manual work to keep occupied. And after the release, you had to go and stay in 
uh, your apartment uh, with the other person who had got released on the same day. And I got released to this guy. He was a real asshole. And I had to spend three days with this fucking guy. And it was just like the worst three days of my life. As you heard earlier, John's core group members all lived with him in his small apartment. While holed up there in the evenings, they'd respond to letters sent in by other group members who were seeking spiritual guidance. Often, this took the form of requests to interpret dreams. Here's an example of such a letter, again from Martin Bevlander's notes. Dear John, In last night's dream, my father looked as he usually does, mild and gentle. He was sitting by a large window in his house. On the floor, underneath the window, slept the cat. The window had a slight crack in it, which seemed of no immediate concern. Outside were a number of bees flying about near this crack. Then I noticed one of the bees got in through a tiny hole in the crack, and I said to my father, shouldn't that be looked after? He didn't seem too concerned. Then, and from here on, the dream rushed on towards its end with great speed. The window split horizontally along the crack, and into the room came a huge swarm of bees. Most of them totally covered the cat, and the remainder of the bees formed a flow carrying the cat like a river towards me. I ran away and down the stairs, jumped aside, and just barely avoided being hit by this avalanche of bees and cat. I felt revolted and horrified, and promptly woke up. To this letter, the core group responded, quote, Thank you for your dream. We will clear you, diffuse the energies, and close any doors which may have been opened by the darkness. The cat represents a being of darkness. The bees represent that this being will have many problems. You need to stay clear of them. The father in this dream represents parts of your consciousness which do not do what they should. Now, another core group member important for understanding how the Students of Light evolved over time is a woman named Joanne Lindsay. Joanne passed away several years ago, but we can piece together some facts based on descriptions from those who knew her. Joanne is consistently described as intelligent and academically minded. By the 1970s, she was working as a vertebrate paleontologist at Toronto's Royal Ontario Museum, where she once published a children's book on dinosaurs. For a time, she apparently became well acquainted with Canadian novelist Margaret Atwood, assisting with museum research for Atwood's 1979 novel, Life Before Man. Joanne receives a special thanks in the acknowledgements at the beginning of the novel. But all of this is from Joanne's life before the Students of Light. She would soon leave her career as a paleontologist behind, after being introduced to John Hainis by a mutual friend and joining the group. John greatly admired Joanne's intelligence, and the two became very close, with a romantic relationship quickly developing. Eventually, Jean channeled that Joanne was a reincarnation of the Virgin Mary. Despite the fact that this in some sense made her John's mother, given that John was supposed to be Jesus, Jean also claimed that it was divinely ordained that John and Joanne be married. The two wed in the mid-1980s. After this, Joanne's status in the group became elevated in the eyes of John's followers, who revered her almost as highly as John himself. Hainus was the male archetype. Joanne was the female archetype. This is what you should aspire to be in life. Former group members say that Joanne relished the status that came with being married to the group leader. 
They would have people cooking for them. It was an honor to cook for them and bring food over. She was the queen bee. She loved being waited on hand and foot. After establishing herself in this role, Joanne eventually brought several of her family members to join the group. Andrew says that there was an understanding among group members that Joanne's family should be given special treatment because of their connection to her. Oh, they're Joanne's family. Oh, you gotta look after them. And there was sort of a kind of reverence toward them. There was a sort of unspoken rule that you just don't go there, like you don't mess with them. After marrying John, Joanne began playing a large role in shaping John's spiritual teachings. John rarely wrote things down, and the big ideas he spouted weren't necessarily always cohesive. But Joanne took it upon herself to write down and systematize John's teachings in a more rigorous way. She saw this as a way of further legitimizing these teachings by making them more scientific. There's always this drive to make it like a sacred science. It's scientific. It's sacred science. This is a special thing that only you are getting because you're the chosen people. And Joanne Haynes had a bit of a, from what I remember, something of an academic background. And she tried to systematize the teachings. Throughout the 80s and 90s, with Joanne writing down and attempting to clarify John's teachings into a coherent system, John began gathering group members together more and more often to listen to him preach. He also began a more intimate seminar program in which smaller groups would gather to hear him speak and spend some time meditating on his words. Prior to his talks and seminars, Joanne would transcribe things John was saying, while to some extent interpreting and clarifying it. John would then read directly off the pages Joanne had written. He would preach about mystical laws of the universe, such as the power of positive thinking and the divine plan God had set out in advance for everyone to fulfill during their lifetimes. He also preached about a long list of virtues his followers were to strive to foster, such as spiritual self-discipline. And what it would be, and a lot of this stuff came from Joanne Haynes, you can think of it sort of like writing an academic thesis. Concepts like, for example, spiritual self-discipline would have been one of them that I can remember. Inner self-discipline was having the self-discipline not to think or feel certain emotions, and to have the inner self-discipline, the inner self-control, not to feel those negative things. And more often than not, it was pretty simple. What was negative? Well, anything that was against the group, basically. Or anything that was outside or didn't bring you further into group doctrine was seen as invalid. And the seminars became increasingly more in-depth and increasingly more intense. And like I said, the one person who was writing this up was Joanne. Andrew says that, over time, the line between John's teaching and Joanne's original contributions became increasingly blurred, since Joanne was interpreting and trying to clarify what John was saying as he wrote it down. While doing so, she began more and more to interject her own ideas into John's teachings. Over time, she became more than just a close right-hand follower, becoming more like a co-leader of the group. The membership of John's core group fluctuated over time, especially as some early founding members of the Students of Light left or had been pushed out by the 1980s. But Jean and Joanne, the two you've heard most about this episode, remained key figures in the core group for decades. Beginning in the 80s, and then especially into the 90s and 2000s, John became much more reclusive, cutting off most day-to-day direct contact with his followers. He would shut himself up in his junction apartment and rely on his core group to deliver his instructions to the rest of his followers. And if regular group members wanted to speak to or deliver a message to John, they had to go through this core group. No, no talking directly with John Haynes. That's a great honor. Only the select chosen few get to talk directly with him up on the top of Mount Olympus there sitting above his health food store. He was totally reclusive, and there was always a hierarchy that you had to go up. Part of why John's reclusiveness ramped up was that, in the 90s, his physical health began deteriorating. We've heard different accounts of exactly what condition he came down with, from an inflammatory spinal disease to osteoporosis. 
But whatever it was, it interfered with his ability to walk, causing him to walk severely hunched over. He eventually stopped personally performing aura balances and delivering seminars, and he attended fewer and fewer group meditation sessions. Though John refused to talk openly about his condition, Robert Pollock writes that group members believed it was somehow a result of his carrying spiritual burdens that they had shouldered him with. As John's health worsened, he relied more and more on his core group, especially Joanne, to take hands-on leadership of the Students of Light. Andrew speculates that, after a certain point, it really became Joanne who was running the show. I'd even go as far as to say Hainis might have been a figurehead in the later years, and she was the one really driving things. These accounts of John's deteriorating physical health are confirmed by people who observed it directly. But a few former members have also told us that, by sometime in the 2000s, it wasn't just John's physical health deteriorating, but his mental health too. While we haven't spoke to anyone who observed this directly, we have spoken to former members who heard it from others who left the group more recently. They tell us that, by the end of his life, dementia had transformed John into an angry, raving man. John in his final years, from what I understand, was sequestered from the group because he was senile. He had dementia. You know, soiling himself, babbling incoherently, for like years before he passed away. John's core group continued to tend to his health while maintaining day-to-day leadership of the group, but they apparently kept John's declining mental condition a secret from the rest of his followers. They would periodically need to call paramedics to have him sedated, and they'd do so only at night to keep it a secret. This secrecy about John's declining mental health is perhaps unsurprising. Throughout his time as leader of the Students of Light, John had made some grandiose claims about himself that he was the reincarnation of Jesus and the primary source of the light in the world. And former members say that John made many other claims over the years, that he could recall things from his past lifetimes, that psychic abilities allowed him to access hidden knowledge and foresee the future, and even that, somehow, it was John's own power that kept the entire state of California from sliding into the sea. After all these claims, it would be a shock to find out that John had become so debilitated, How could someone with such godlike powers experience such a drastic fall from grace? After years of declining health, John eventually passed away on March 11, 2012. Andrew has heard that the core group kept John's death a secret for months. When he died, they tried to keep it a secret, because they wanted to maintain the myth of this great, immortal John Hainis. John's death left his core group in the position of figuring out what would happen next. How would the group continue on now that their Christ figure had gotten sick and died? Chasing Enlightenment was written and narrated by Daniel Monroe. Audio production and editing by Carolyn Smiley. Additional research and voiceovers by Robert Monroe. Artwork and web design by Megan Hilario. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. You can find more information about the show and ways to support us at ChasingEnlightenment.net. Contact us at ChasingEnlightenment at gmail.com. For mental health support in Canada, visit wellnesstogether.ca or text 686868 for immediate help. Those seeking to leave abusive relationships can visit endingviolencecanada.org.
I'm April. Hey, I'm Caroline, and this is Bloody Happy Hour. Your newest true crime comedy podcast. So grab your favorite drink and join us every week for Thirsty Thursday. We promise to tell you the bloodiest stories and give you a laugh in between. Go find us, follow us, and subscribe anywhere you get your podcast. Because guess what? We're about to be sipping on some murder. Murder. 